I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Rachel Graff. And we love to watch. We love to watch you feed me. Welcome back to our podcast, Rachel. I'm so, so excited, excited to be here. Yes, yes. Um, Rachel's back. a, a second the, time guest. Saving Grace, yes. Well, yeah, she was the saving grace of our Newsies episode. She has let us know, look, I don't like you. I don't like your podcast, but I like musicals. So when you do musicals, call me. You better call me, actually. Ideally. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of hate. I, it was weird. We we don't get much mail for this podcast, let alone hate mail. Uh, we got a lot of hate mail from the Newsies episode, and it was all from Rachel to me specifically. <laughs> <laughs> just in my in my cube at work every day, like, oh, someone left me a letter. Fuck you. But she was polite about it. She'd like <laughs> hand you it taped to a brick. She wouldn't like throw it through the cubicle wall. Yeah, she just let me know she could. Just yeah. gentle hate mail. I mean, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it was so, uh, so Rachel, uh, I, I work with Rachel. Uh, that's actually our first segment today. Rachel, I had to leave the company meeting early today because my daughter was graduating preschool. Uh, what did I miss? I feel like that could be an entire 45 minute podcast on itself. So we'll take that one offline. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just missed the Q and a, if you could just recap it later for me, that would be perfect. perfect. Uh, I feel like you could done. ask the same question if you were in the meeting, Aaron. Yeah, what what did I miss? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so uh, so Rachel's here, and we are on third week of Musical May, part two, part two. Uh, this time we're doing some really good ones, uh, and we're we're on a big one. We are on a Little Shop of Horrors. I've said for the longest time my favorite musical. I think that's still true. I think it is at the very least. It is definitely my favorite movie. Uh, adaptation of a musical or a movie musical or anything like that. I think I'd have to do a little bit more digging if there's like um, uh, uh, some soundtrack I like better, like maybe a Jesus Christ Superstar or uh, uh, Peter Cover Your Ears, Hamilton. Um, (laughs) Peter hates Hamilton. Um, I don't hate Hamilton. The person, the $10 bill. I don't like it. I'll get to someday. I'll see the actual show. Maybe that'll change my mind. I, I haven't given it a fair shake. You like the songs from Moana? Moana's great, but I saw a Moana movie. I Fun fact: I same person. Not many I people know him, that. It was really for <laughs> really on the down low. I love him except for his episode of How I Met Your Mother. That was that rhyming episode. Oh, it was you the season that? nine. That's right. You told me because I I, oh. I I I tapped out at season seven. Good for you, sweetie. <laughs> I did. I was like, that's I like I, I was really dramatic about it too. I made like a big post on Facebook, like that I was done with the show. I think I framed it like I was uh quitting some sort of uh addictive substance. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Did Josh Radnor shed a single tear that night? No, he sent me a text just said, happy, thank you, more please. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that in his his next movie, he would have uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl, whose name was Zibby? You think Josh Radnor would lean on that trope for his movies? That sounds really weird to me. As he is... Zibby? uh, His name was... Sure, her name was Zibby, is what you're saying? Mm Mm-hmm. Man, Zach Braff gets all the shit. Uh, so yeah, we are also, we love to watch, have, we're really bad at introducing our own show, but if for some reason, this is your first, yeah, I get it. <laughs> um, this is, if this is your first time listening, we're a movie podcast. We do theme months. Uh, and as I mentioned already, our theme is musicals and then blah, 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 the movie. We're, we're not going to do an opening segment, uh, because, uh, we, we have a lot to talk about this movie It is one of my favorite movies of all time. And we're also going to get into the uh, alternate ending that was very hard to watch until 2012. Um, I believe all of us watched it as well. So we are going to be talking about the movie primarily, the one that was released in 1986. But we're going to spend some time at the end kind of talking about uh, what was cut, what was uh, finally kind of restored, and and uh, which one we prefer. Rachel, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Awesome. Well, my name is Rachel Graff. Um, this is my second guest appearance on We Love to Watch, and I'm super happy to be back. Um, as Aaron mentioned, we work together, and I am a kind of musical extraordinaire, and I that's a completely self-imposed title because <laughs> I merely have a degree in dance, and apparently that qualifies me to guest star on a movie review podcast. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do love Little Shop of Horrors, so I'm super excited to talk about the the movie. I had never actually seen the film until Aaron asked me to be on this podcast because I had only seen the stage version. So it was interesting for, to me to finally have a chance to watch the movie and kind of start to analyze the the subtle differences between the two. So holy shit! So I didn't know that till right now. It's a fun moment of this podcast. I I knew that you liked. Little Shop of Horrors, we kind of had this conversation at work, though, where a lot of times when I'm saying, like, what my favorite musical is, I am referring to movies specifically. And you, right. because you have more of a stage background and less of an um, obsessive movie problem, um, <laughs> you're usually referring to what is more commonly, like, the musical in that the right. stage production of a musical. So right. that's amazing that you've never seen this before. So I'm even more excited that we're going to get a chance to hear your thoughts because it really it really is one of my sweet baby boy movies and uh and and kind of a movie that immediately peter i forget what movie i think the lure we were talking about it where sometimes when you watch a movie in the first five minutes you you kind of stop everything and go oh i'm gonna love everything about this movie I don't need to get into it. I don't need to see what happens next. Like the five minutes, the first five minutes is so clear that everything that's going on matches your personal taste and your aesthetic and everything else that you're like, oh, no, I'm going to this is going to I'm going to watch this a million times. This is it. I love this. For musicals, they have to put kind of not their necessarily their best foot, but one of their best feet forward um, in the first five minutes because of how musicals work. They need to sort of make a a big production of saying hello to you and this is a movie that does that just like the lord did um it says hello to you with a bunch of really great songs right off the bat have we talked yet about the we haven't talked about the alan mankin thing yet so so, um ashman and mankin did newsies um and this was their first they uh mankin actually wrote the screenplay 
and they they did the uh, Ashman did the the music. This was their they wrote it an off Broadway musical in 1982, and then it was adapted to the movie directed by Frank Oz, uh, which we're gonna which we're gonna talk about today. And then those two went on to basically like completely n- not just change um, musicals and and movies, but I feel like kind of changed the the face of the the world in a weird way. And I know that sounds like a lot of hyperbole, but like Disney was in serious financial trouble, especially their animation, their movie studios in the, uh, in the mid eighties. And it wasn't until little mermaid came out, which, you know, really rode on the backs of their, you know, production numbers and got the review and attention of like, Oh, this isn't just another like uh shitty Disney movie or subpar Disney movie that we've had for the last 20 years. This is something special. And then they did the same thing with Beauty and the Beast and they did it with Aladdin, which kind of re-exploded um, the Disney brand in general uh, as an animation studio, but also the merchandising and everything else that kind of went along with it. So, and that was in the 90s. But if you don't have that happen, you don't have Disney eventually buy ABC. You don't have Disney eventually buy the Marvel movies and Lucasfilm and now – I don't know, 20th Century Fox and also uh, they own part of your house that you're living in right now. But, you know, that all, that kind of epicenter of it's a hundred year lease. It's a hundred year lease. Just don't go in the basement. That's where <laughs> the stuff happens. But it really was. It was The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin that kind of re-exploded Disney as this this animation powerhouse and then led to Pixar and everything else we know is like the Disney empire today for good and bad. Those movies rode on the backs of the kind of re-explosion of uh, the musical in the common conscious and as something that people were buying soundtracks on and everybody knew the songs. So in some ways, even though we're probably not going to get into it beyond this kind of opening uh, mention of it, like Little Shop of Horrors in a very weird way kind of changed the landscape of uh, American entertainment. It's a bold statement. Yeah, and it's it's uh, a movie I love quite a bit. So yeah, so uh, – on the other, so we're gonna go. We're gonna we're gonna get right into it. Uh, Rachel, um, is is there anything else that people need to be aware of besides you? Are, you already did a good like you punked Jamie Kennedy. I got axed. Didn't know you had never seen this before. Any other surprise in store before we go into the plot and start discussing uh, Little Shop of Horrors? No surprises in store. Um, I recently saw this on stage, mm, probably about. Seven months ago, um, so hopefully I'm hopefully I'm fresh enough to make some comparisons to the stage musical. But really interestingly, this is one of those movies where the the musical came first, and then the movie was made versus Newsies, which was a movie first and then created for the stage. Um, but there's really not a lot of differences between the stage musical and the movie. So I figured focusing on kind of analyzing the film and the story in general will probably suffice as far as a comparison goes. Yeah, I think and it's funny because I've actually seen the stage musical, but I saw it at a community college in the the early 2000s in Bismarck, North Dakota. So I did you see a better version of it than that? Because I, I, <laughs> I don't know. That sounds pretty possible. five star to me. <laughs> um, um, I did. I did see a, a professional production. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna venture to guess hmm. it was a little higher quality than perhaps the production you saw. That's some harsh shade on uh, Bismarck <laughs> State College, but okay. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Shout out to Artistry in Bloomington for your awesome production of Little Shop of Horrors. But you're right, though, because this really does seem like because of the like the set and everything else, it does seem like this would have to be a movie first because of all the like technical wizardry that would go into it. So it, it is funny that this really started as like a four year like a, a off Broadway thing. Um, yep. I did want to mention how close the um, – especially the director's cut, the original version, and the stage musical are because I feel like the Wikipedia has some harsh shade on Frank Oz <laughs> for no reason about that. And I, I want to read this because it made me laugh so hard. Geffen wanted Frank Oz to do it after finishing working on Muppets Take My Hand. Here's the – here it goes. Oz initially rejected it. But he later had an idea that got him into the cinematic aspect of the project, which he did not figure out before. Oz spent a month and a half to restructure the script, which he felt was stage-bound. Gaffin and Ashman liked what he had written and decided to go with what he did. Oz was also studying the off-Broadway show and how it was thematically constructed all in order to break it down and reconstruct it for the feature film. So, very nice paragraph kind of talks about Frank Oz's process to just break down the entire thing so he could completely restructure it. Next sentence, new paragraph. The film differs only slightly from the stage play. (laughs) (laughs) I love when there's like random Wikipedia shade, but like to have this whole thing about Oz's process too, he thought it was too stage bound. He broke it down and studied it so he could restructure it for then the next sentence to be, it's pretty much the same. Yeah, it's it, and it's nice though in the sense that like I would love to see this live. I, I really would, but uh, that's part of the deal with theater and musical productions. Even though you know Broadway productions sometimes never die, like with uh, that's like part of the deal with theater is that stuff just goes away. And so it is kind of nice to know, like, okay, I'm kind of getting the the gist of what it would be like um, in terms of, you know, a lot of the music has remained roughly the same and the the um, structure of the plot and the themes are roughly the same. Like that, that's kind of comforting to me for someone who's never seen any version of, of this theatrically. <laughs> On a stage, it's, it's not very different because you really have a street scene and you have inside the flower shop. There's not really that many other settings in the entire movie either. So it's, it was fairly easy to do on stage and I don't think they ventured far from that in the movie besides maybe some of the dream sequence in something green and obviously the theatrical ending where they go to a a cute little white picket fence house it is admirable how they built a entire replica of the Statue of Liberty inside that theater and um had a bunch of military guys in come in with actual rifles and shoot at the big Statue of Liberty just for you know, that stage production, that was pretty cool of them to do that. I mean, yeah, Bismarck State College has a hell of a budget. Like, <laughs> acting's a little iffy, but the budgets are pretty big. Most of your tuition basically goes to Statue of Liberty reconstruction for various plays. Um, you just went to the French and you were like, another one. It is so funny, though, because this, um, this movie was shot on the 007 soundstage in England, which is a huge soundstage. And it was mostly because of sequences that got cut out. So I, I, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, the original ending of this movie, Out of Context, seems like a dare to burn money for no reason. And um, <laughs> it's, so, it's so sad and must have been so disheartening for everyone to have, to have to cut it out because it really is just like 
this insane proportion of destruction and scale and all these other things that kind of and and the movie and all that was taken out for a, an electrocution scene. But we're going to get into the plot right on the other side of a musical break that it's going to be tough to pick songs for this episode, I got to tell you, because I want all of them. So do you guys want to talk more about Little Shop, Little Shop of Horrors? Little Shop, Little Shop of Terror. Wow, you guys are are nailing it right now. I don't even know Thank if I can you. follow that up. Uh, Thanks, well, you I'm didn't. Tone deaf. So, yeah. <laughs> I didn't sing it, though. Can you, can you at least, <laughs> hold on. Rachel, can you clap? Just do one of those. I, I can clap, yes. I'm just going to say, there you go. I'm going to say my claps were your claps. Uh, <laughs> Great. So it's yes, let's talk about it. singing a yes was your yeah. singing a yes yeah was me singing along a yes because i feel like it was a definitive sort of answer i think it was good i'm glad you Thank did you. so uh welcome back or maybe you heard us say that who knows edits are fun uh <laughs> peter do aaron, you have any <laughs> yep aaron sorry uh i thought we were gonna take a little bathroom break but it has been 20 minutes can i come back in three minutes yeah yeah well you can just pee on air like you've been doing. <laughs> you know, everyone won't notice the difference. I'll just say yeah. I'm pouring pep- Pepsi. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, when we do the really quick opening segment, sometimes I'm like banking on the bathroom break and then we don't actually take it. Uh, I would be a professional in the actual theater world. You really would. Well, they have more definitive bathroom breaks when you're doing a stage musical. <laughs> rarely do, intermission. Does, yeah. <laughs> rarely do the characters on screen go, can I take a quick five? love to watch we're gonna get right into it peter what do you got for alternate taglines alternate taglines huh is that what you want out of me oh that means i haven't written any yet 
Um, you don't need to stall when we edit out silences. <laughs> There's no vamping. Quick, this is live radio. <laughs> Say something. Well, just give me a minute and I will tell you about the alternate taglines. If we have dead air, our cigarette sponsors will walk out the door. <laughs> we can't lose Chester's. <laughs> Plant your feet or you'll get blown out of your socks for this carnivorous musical. <laughs> you'll get blown out of your socks so you went yeah. for the passive voice on it yeah 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 it's a tagline they usually go for a very passive soft sort of approach right they try to make it as uh complicated as possible and as confusing language wise to people so they have to sit and think for a while marketing <laughs> uh, marketing's best when it's confusing <laughs> I don't know what McDonald's sells still, but I know they love it. <laughs> like the Muppets, but not for kids. <laughs> um, Rachel, do you have any alternate taglines? You can't do worse. It's Mine would hard. just have to be something about Steve Martin and leather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that you're was. On the, you're on the right path. <laughs> <laughs> um, Steve Martin and leather is pretty good. Getting warmer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like the prequel to Secretary. <laughs> Ooh. That's, that's it tagline. dot 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 <laughs> like this yeah. um so aaron do you want to uh tell us a little bit do, about do I say a, a little bit about the plot of little shop little shop of horrors little shop little shop you don't have to mumble there's a mic oh yeah uh so the plot of little shop of horrors is um a uh, man by the name of seymour he uh works seymour. at a plant shop he, yeah, there's a lot of different uh, people say his name because he's the main mm. character. Seymour. Uh, <laughs> why don't you do the uh, Mr. Mr. Kremnish, Mr. Cramden? Seymour. Not even close. <laughs> what was that? Close. That was like Ralph Cramden from the Honeymooners. Wait, am I doing Mr. Mushkin? Mr. Mushkin, yeah. Okay. Uh, Isn't it Mushnik? Bushnick. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Continue, Aaron. I'm sorry. I can only do two voices in the. Okay. Oh, man. There goes our our uh, our large arsenal of voices that people expect from <laughs> us out the tubes. So he works in a plant shop, and he is in love with Audrey, who is dating a uh, doctor by the name of the dentist, who is a masochist, and he is in love with her, and he just kind of has a shitty life. He was adopted. It's a very poor neighborhood. Uh, very dilapidated. Their flower shop's not doing great. Um, Where depression is status quo. Depression is status quo. That's a great way to put it, Peter. Mm. I came up with it. Yeah, it's like they're living on some sort of skid row. Um, <laughs> and if you go downtown, your life's a mess. So, they he ends up finding a, um, a plant during a total eclipse of the sun. And uh, this plant uh, is pretty weird looking, kind of looks like a Venus flytrap. And he fe- ends up going, hey, it doesn't need anything. Oh. And so he gives it blood and eventually it gets bigger. And because it's an alien sent to destroy everyone and it gets bigger and bigger. And eventually he can't just uh, open a vein and give him blood. He ends up killing the dentist and then kills Mr. Mushnik. And the plant reveals its evil plan that it's actually not just a plant, uh, but a mean green mother from outer space. And he's bad. He's Seymour's got him fighting mad. I think it's I think it's fair to say safe to say 
he's fighting mad at the end of this movie. But thankfully, uh, he uh, Audrey and Seymour stop him with electrocution, and they uh, go live happily ever after. That's a good quick recap. You've probably seen this. You know the story. There's also a lot of amazing songs, uh, and it is set during the 60s, which for some reason is the first time uh, that I picked up on that, which makes sense so much because of the um, the musical um, – Influences all kind of like 60s doo-wop and all that kind yeah, of Mot- stuff. Sort of Motown. Yeah. And Factor uh, era. for some reason, I never picked up on that, which sounds dumb. But part of that is because, as I mentioned, the first time I experienced this movie was one of those quick things where it immediately became one of my favorite things. I remember I put it on at the video store. I was working at just because I knew it was a musical and sometimes background stuff worked. And I like kind of stared and watched it for a while. And I'm like. Oh, I'm going to turn this off and bring it home today and, and watch this whole thing. So I remember renting it and I watched it a couple times and then went out and bought it. And it just became something I was pretty evangelical about to, to friends throughout high school and college about how amazing this movie was. And so I think that's why some of the stuff like it being set in the 60s and being influenced on Motown that maybe I never um, – I didn't really pick up on it because when when something becomes that much of like a thing you love, you just start thinking of it as like the thing you love. Like it's not influenced by anything. It's just, oh, that's Little Shop of Horrors. That's what Little Shop of Horrors sounds like because it's – that's what it sounds like. And so it was really fun for me to be able to do this for this month to kind of – um look at it with fresh eyes and kind of that note taking that we do on this podcast just because when something when when you've seen something 200 times it's sometimes um difficult to kind of take a step back and look at it with a critical viewpoint because it just becomes a thing you know and love i feel like i have a lot to talk about on this episode um much like when we've done other favorites of ours uh like the thing uh, and the never-ending story and some of those uh, i'm going to apologize in advance if i feel like i have a million things to talk about but I really, I really do love this movie, and I'm especially excited to talk about the director's cut part because I, when I first got the Blu-ray and saw it for the first time in 2012, I just kind of thought, oh, that's neat. I've always wanted to see that. And now kind of like analyzing this movie through the prism of like 2018 and some of the um, sexual politics and some of the um, the nice guy-ness that Seymour really exudes, I have a newfound respect as for the director's cut as the more appropriately thematic direction of the movie. So I'm excited to talk about that as well. So uh, Peter, why don't you uh, tell a bit about your background and then I'm very excited to hear Rachel's first reaction to this movie and the comparison to uh, the musical that she had seen and loved. Um, So my background on this is that uh, I sort of circled this movie for years because it was a Comedy Central staple for a bunch of years. And uh, but I I was annoyed with it because I was like hungry for horror movies, but it was a musical. So it just pushed me away because I hated musicals growing up. But it had Rick Moranis in it and it was a Frank Oz movie. And it, it was just like everything seemed to be lining up except for the fact that it was a musical. And then about a year ago after we did Musical May for this show, I something clicked in my brain and I decided like Aaron loves this movie. I'll check it out. And you had never it. seen it before when we recorded last year? Never in full. I'd uh, seen pieces of okay. it and I was like, well, that song's pretty cool. And I'd read about it on The Dissolve, obviously, because they did it as a movie of, the, movie of the week or whatever. There's a really great article about it there. Um, but I never 
never uh, actually seen the, the thing in totality. And I was, like you were saying earlier, I was hooked in five minutes. Like, it, it's it's a powerhouse of a musical. It's just so goddamn charming immediately. And all those elements that when I was younger, I was like, this feels like it's made for me, but it's a musical. No, it's all made for me, including the fact that it's a musical. So it's uh, it's it was so fun to get to revisit it for the show, even yeah, less than a year later, uh, because it's a ninety-three minute special effects. 80s horror comedy with Rick Moranis and it's got Steve Martin and like maybe my favorite film role for him it's just charmed all the way through so yeah I uh I'm really happy we're doing it today uh so this is gonna be I think a very positive episode um except for this well (laughs) except for this no uh I do have one thing that I feel doesn't really work well in the movie we can talk about that in a sec, but I am extremely excited to find out what Rachel thought of this movie. Um, I loved the film version. I think whenever you see a different adaptation than something of something you love, whether it be you know a, a stage version that turns into a film or vice versa, it can be a little daunting to go into it because you have expectations. Um, but because they're so similar, I I loved it. I and the stage version is still so campy, kind of like the the movie version is. It feels like a B movie on stage. So I think the translation was was perfect. Um, I think there are some kind of portrayals of characters that are a little bit different. I think Seymour in the stage version feels a little more. He feels more dynamic, like at least in the version I saw, I felt like there was a more significant change where Seymour kind of stays this doe-eyed, innocent, nervous guy in the movie. Um, But other than that, I I felt like it was a solid transition and you can't beat the, the vocals and the music in the movie. You just can't. Yeah. And some of the campiness of this movie, I almost feel like could be a turnoff for people because it really starts on a on a like the acting is very big and stagey, especially early on. I feel like it becomes more I'm not going to say naturalistic because that is not something this movie is going for or trying. But I I think when the movie itself and the tone gets more depressing a lot of the bigness of the performances kind of end up getting uh, sawed down a little bit. And it's, it, and I can imagine if you're coming into it and not being familiar with um, the fact that this is a takeoff of a Roger Corman movie from the sixties. And then this kind of big campy off Broadway thing, I could see being a little confused, especially in the modern prism of like, Oh, why, why are they all talking like this? So the way I see it, Aaron, is that they're sinking to the rhythms, which, yes, obviously the rhythms are inspired by the Corman movies, like classic monster movies. The original ending is clearly just like big monster movie inspired um, invader, uh, you know, um, invasion of the body snatchers and them and that kind of era of, of, you know, red scare panic, um, big monster movie inspired big and theatrical and but also with this new infusion of like 60s um, Phil Spector era pop music and it's trying to be very heightened. But I think what makes it feel more real as it goes along is that you sink to its rhythms because of the central love story because Seymour is 
such a lovable dude at first and you almost don't want to admit what he's done as the movie goes on and then when there's finally that big moment of love between our two our two protagonists that big uh, suddenly Seymour moment like you kind of forget everything else and then the movie is like hey you can't forget everything else there's a big monster in this and Seymour has sinned against the universe like Seymour Seymour needs to give back to the universe in some way and it's it, it, I think that I think that that yeah you're right as it gets more depressing but also as it gets more romantic is what makes you sink to its rhythms like it doesn't get any less weird it definitely doesn't get any less weird I, I find it interesting I, I feel like this is going to turn into our spring discussion again a little bit because Again, trying to watch this with fresh eyes, which is always hard to do, but having the director's cut to compare it against was was helpful in that regard. I kind of was like, you know what? I've spent 15 years or 20 years or whatever it is being a little bit too suckered in by Seymour, Seymour's off shuck stuff and like not really confronting the fact that he truly becomes a monster, not just in the fact that he murders people. And obviously, I don't think... This movie is not trying to have a discussion about, like, the moral grayness of, like, murdering a serial abuser. So, I, we don't <laughs> It's need not to get Breaking into... Bad. Yeah. No, no, it's not. Right. It's it's not trying to get into that. I'm not trying to go there. But it is saying, like, okay, it started here, which is, like, you could have a discussion about, like, moral justification, um, whichever side you come down on. And then it goes to, like, Mr. Mushnick, and there's, like, an implied long stretch where he is clearly somehow delivering some kills to Audrey too. And, and maybe, maybe it's in some sort of like Dexter thing where he's only going out and continuing to kill bad guys. But I do feel like he's kind of pushed over the edge a little bit in, into like uh, whether he's a redeemable character or not. And cause he does it until the very last moment of this movie, essentially only when he thinks that it's going to, you know, spread and go other places and it's funny, though, because the director's cut does not let him off the hook in the way this movie does. Uh, the director's cut has a moment where where Audrey dies, uh, killed by the, the plant instead of being saved. And he goes to uh, Audrey, too, and says, hey, yeah, I am a complete monster. And because I'm a monster, I lost the only thing I loved. And then he goes to... Um, uh, he goes he goes on top of the roof to kill himself and then his last act of his last kind of act of he someone confronts him and says hey we're gonna market this uh, which was played by James Belushi in the the theatrical but it's a little different in the in the directors and he goes okay as my last act before I uh, die I need to at least try to have an act of redemption and stop the plant which he fails at and we'll talk about more later but it it is interesting that I assume Rachel the stage musical follows that path of him being a little less redeemable because i think the stage musical ends with both of them dying as well right correct yep everybody dies in the stage version <laughs> so uh, frank oz said that basically the reason he got away with a they got away with a darker ending in the theatrical version was because people could see um the actors come out at the end and take their bow and i i doubt that uh, so I, do you know do you know the I story behind why it got cut a little bit? So we could we could just do a quick one minute on that. So they filmed it with all with closer to the stage musical where everyone dies, yep. and they did an audience screening. And the way it worked was 
you basically need to have 55% approval for the movie to go forward to its final cut where uh, Warner Brothers or whoever had the movie decided that. And every one of these at the screening was like standing on their feet. They loved it. And then they killed Audrey and then they killed Seymour and the audience rapidly turned against the movie and gave it 11% audience score, which was like, we can't release this, which is why they took the steps they did to change it. Um, but you're, but here's the thing. So watching this for years and years and years, nothing about it seemed out of place. Nothing seemed sudden to me. I think the movie in a vacuum, I agree with you, Peter, it sells its love story. The ending feels like the natural conclusion. It does not feel like a sudden ending. It's only when in comparison to either the stage musical or the director's cut where I, I kind of tend to lean towards that version, but we'll get into that more. But I, I do think that you're right to get into something. We might as well get into this now. Rick Moranis is, even when he is playing kind of a creep, like he is in this movie in a lot of respects, and uh, the original Ghostbusters especially, where he's essentially like a, a stalker of his neighbor. He is so lovable that you almost don't notice even when he's playing um, a creepy dude. And in some ways, it doesn't work very well for me in this movie, um, mostly just because you you don't want to justify what he's doing. But in other ways, it makes it more interesting that you're still still rooting for him throughout all of these things. If yeah. You, if you see Audrey, since Audrey is not a person, um, if you see Audrey as a symbolic representation of his his um, hunger for fame and hunger for recognition and hunger for, you know, having a decent lifestyle his I'm pretty sure his first line in the movie is like i've always been poor like it's, oh, it's do, do, do. in yep. skid row which is a, an amazing kickoff song i yeah. already referenced earlier skid row is one of the best ways to start a movie if you're making a movie just start with skid row it worked here um but <laughs> yeah it, we'll, we'll go back and talk about the music after some of this stuff because yeah. we need to get but uh <clears throat> rick moranis is so he's he if you view Audrey too as merely a representation of his need to be recognized by society, need to be recognized by himself and his greed, like yeah, you're just gonna see him as a monster monster, like because he's literally feeding in blood to make himself famous and make himself profitable. But like you guys are saying, it's Rick Moranis who is one of the sweetest like comedic actors SCTV gave up, gave us a lot of like lovable actors. Um, Catherine O'Hara and John Candy, I think most notably of the group. Eugene and Levy. Gene Levy. Well. Yeah. Jim's dad. Yeah. Yeah. Rick Moranis is, is, he's really good. But you also have Steve Martin. Uh, Rachel, your, your tagline was about, was, was on the precipice of having some sort of, uh, Steve Martin, I don't know, leather daddy thing going on. Um, he's like the inspiration for David Cross's character in Rest of Development. Uh, not true. What What were your thoughts seeing this? Because it, it, he shows up in the most perfectly timed moment a half hour into the movie with like the best delivery too. Um, and like the perfect comics cut to the music playing and him kind of sneering directly into the camera i remember that was the moment where the movie went from i love this to yep no this is one of my favorite movies i don't even need to see the last hour (laughs) this is great so 
What was that moment like for you? Because I imagine the stage musicals have trouble <laughs> capturing the Steve Martin part of this. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, as usually a kind of musical purist, you know, I, I've hated the trend lately of when they turn the musical into a movie, they just cast the most famous people that can sort of sing. You know, they're just trying to get the name recognition versus people with true talent that are best for the role. Yeah. But I feel like Steve Martin, while he's not the best singer for a cameo type type role like that, where he the song is not about the vocals. It's about the humor of having this dentist who likes to inflict pain. I think he's perfect. I mean, and you laugh because it is so not Steve Martin to be riding uh, a motorcycle in leather that it just I think it adds to it. I think it's amazing. When he's doing the little juke move in the dentist office, I laugh. Yes. Like, it's so fucking funny because he's he's such a good mover. Right. Um, he's really good at, like, comic dance and, like, <laughs> he's not a rubber face, but he's very good at that sort of... Well, well um, yeah, King Tut was, like, just him, like, singing and dancing and that was yeah. like, that's it. That's I, I remember my dad thought that was like the pinnacle of comic genius. Oh, yeah. So I got to experience the I didn't know anything about this movie a year ago when I watched it. I got to experience the, um, the You'll cut. Be a Dentist uh, cut with no knowledge of where it was going. Yeah. And it broke my fucking brain. <laughs> it, I just couldn't. I like I like didn't laugh at first. I was just like, uh. Uh, wait, what? <laughs> like, like sometimes a joke is so good that it takes me a few seconds to be like, wait, I should be laughing right now. And then I laughed through half the jokes in the beginning of it. And then watching it this time, I'm like, there's a lot of really great, like, mean one-liners about him just being, like, a sack of shit. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it does feel like we could do an entire podcast just about that sequence and that song because there's so much going on. First, it... It gives kind of this, I don't know, it, it gives this illustration to something that you've probably always suspected that your dentist is a sick fucker who <laughs> likes to hurt you for no reason and that half the stuff uh, he or she does is for no reason. Also, like, I love the idea that say ah was some sort of like way to get people to start screaming now because what they were going to experience was bad. You know, it's the whole – he does this throughout the movie where say ah is not like open your mouth and say ah for a noise. It's like this is your start of your screaming. Please begin now. Right. I love that. That's so – it's so minor, but it, it just shows how like how many genius moments are in that sequence. I think that song is the peak of Howard Ashman's lyrical genius of this this show. All the jokes and references in there, like they pass so quickly, you don't catch them all the first time you hear that song. He wrote the line, I thrill when I drill a bicuspis, which right there, I mean, it's line after line of like working all of this like technical dentistry jargon into <laughs> a a peppy, musically singable song, which is <laughs> difficult. He, he says my... Uh, Something about um, that I'm maladjusted. Like, there's a very, yes. there's, there's a very fun jokesmith kind of quality to this, where every line is is kind of funny or very funny, which is a lot to say about musicals. Because musicals sometimes, um, I'm speaking just for me, um, <laughs> musicals I think often get by off of making very crappy sort of bland jokes. 
because of the setting and the ornateness of the setting and how quiet the fucking theater is when a joke doesn't land. Like, I think people <laughs> laugh just to be like, ha, 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 I can't deal with the silence. Um, well, you know what else does that, though? Campy what? movies. Campy movies, I think, were the beginning of a trend that was capitalized on by, like, Adult Swim in the 90s and, and 2000s, which is, like, anti-comedy. Like, we know this isn't funny. But the fact that we're saying and doing it is what makes it funny. But inherently, it's not funny. And a lot of times, campy movies really lean on we can get by on the ridiculousness of the premise without having to have jokes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So this is coming from the world of campy stuff and musicals and like still has these amazing like lyrical zingers. Speaking of real campy. Um, can we talk briefly about how meatballs isn't funny, um, but it just gets off of gets off on how being so zany because Bill Murray is there. Yeah, meatballs um, is terrible. It's why we're not doing it for our camp month. Yeah, yeah, never. Um, but Bill Murray is in this film uh, very briefly. His his cameo does not have neither the um, the 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 uh, announcement that Steve Martin gets. Nor does it have, like, the Joke Smith uh, element that Steve Martin gets. But it's kind of fun to have Bill Murray show up as, like, a little in one of these movies, right? So he – so what's funny about this is that – it's first of all, it's the only time that Martin and Bill Murray have ever been on a movie together to this day. Which is wild. Crazy. And so – and Rachel, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this too because – so that was a scene. So Jack Nicholson – played basically Bill Murray's character in the original 1960 Roger Corman directed Little Shop of Horrors. That was a scene that was taken out of the musical version when it was created in 1982. But Frank Oz liked it so much from the original movie that he added it back in. So if you go see the musical, there's not a masochist um, who kind of stops the movie. I'm not going to say dead because I love it. I absolutely love the scene. I love Bill Murray. I love the interaction with Steve Martin. I love the idea that um, this would be a Dennis' greatest uh, greatest adversary, <laughs> someone who likes pain. But so this would have been completely new for you, I assume. It was, yeah. And I kind of was like, wait, Bill Murray's in this movie as I was <laughs> watching. I, I don't know. I, I guess I haven't seen the 1960 version. I think, especially in the stage version, it would have felt like it didn't fit because you want to see the dentist as the most screwed up person in, yeah. in the story. And then like this other person comes in, this other character for Bill Murray and kind of makes you think, Oh wait, is, is Seymour the odd one out here? It's a, <laughs> uh, it's, it's off putting, but I think that's kind of what Bill Murray made his career on was kind of being a little bit off. putting. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really good summation of Bill Murray. <laughs> oh yeah, um, for sure. That's a, a such a cameo role that, you write it for the actor. You find this epic person that can do that. Once again, the high schools in rural Minnesota putting on Little Shop of Horrors are barely going to find anyone who's screwed up enough to be the dentist. A little <laughs> this, <laughs> the side character. So, have you? So, did you see a high school production of this? Or no, did you I see? saw. I saw a professional production. Man, I would love to see a high school production only to see <laughs> what they do with the dentist if he's yeah. just like a little bit of a jerk. They really, like, edit that down. Well, and I think in the stage version, there's obviously a lot more... You can't do as much with the different scenes. You know, we see Steve Martin going from the street, riding a motorcycle through the office and doing some crazy things. You you can't really recreate that. So it's much more of a kind of a monologue type song. Still funny. And it does allow you to kind of focus more on 
the fantastic lyrics in that song. Yeah, if you're going to have high school do that, the, you're going to have the <laughs> kid try to play that as best as they can, but it's it's not going to hold a candle to Steve Martin. Yeah, exactly. But this seems like a good transition to start talking about the rest of the music because it is a musical and this has some of my favorites. I mean, the reason I call it my favorite movie musical, besides the fact that probably if you strip the music out, I would still really like this movie because uh, we're definitely going to get to uh, the other really main thing we have to talk about is the the Audrey 2 puppet and the special effects of this movie, which are uh, astounding. I, I don't have it's another insane. word for it. Yeah. Like it's it's, it's, it's amazing just, to this it's day. Level of the thing, of the John Carpenter thing. It's the level of that. Like it's it's so impressive that they were able to do so much with this thing that was such a cumbersome object. No green that, screen. The, the thing has no fucking eyes. Mm-hmm. It just has lips and a mouth, and it's so expressive through the puppetry and the, the voice. voice. Yeah. Ugh, how do so, they do it? It's it's so one of the things they actually did to make it seem realistic, and this is insane. I didn't know this. They shot it um, at half speed, and then they played yes. it back. So that means that any scene that you see Rick Moranis acting against Audrey Two, which is a lot of those scenes, he is singing all of his songs at half speed. It's insane. Now, obviously, I'm assuming they dubbed in the music, like the actual singing later, because that would be hard to to sound good. But the fact that he is able to like move his mouth and act opposite all this puppet stuff with with absolutely no green screen and no compositing, like all that shit was in the room with him, and he is literally acting against it. It is uh, impressive. Seems like um seems like an insult because I've just I've never seen anything like it to this day. And he is acting against it, yes. He is acting against it as if it is a person. He is reacting to it in a way that I think few actors today can actually react to a CGI creature in a movie. Like, even when there is a little person, like a little guy in a green screen you know, uh, holding a stick with a ball. <laughs> yeah. Like an Andy circus or something, or somebody, somebody doing something with a stick and a ball or like some, somebody being like, you should look here and then tell the monster that you're mad at him. Like that stuff is so fucking hard. And Rick Moranis also looked at the enormous effort, the muscular effort that these guys were putting into this fucking Audrey 2 thing. The specific muscular effort. This is true puppetry. And say, and being like, I'm going to act at, against this as if it's a real person. And it shows in the movie so much. Well, and Rachel, too, what – I mean, it's it's 2018. <laughs> what, what, what did these – you've seen now, like, whole worlds created in computers. Like, right. what what did you think of the special effects of this? I was also super impressed and I I kept thinking back to seeing a stage version and thinking that it's kind of the same, you know, like it's still just a huge puppet when you see it on stage. And that part was really interesting to me because you would think, you know, if they were to make this movie now, the special effects, like, can you imagine what that Audrey 2 would be like if they made it in 2018? But I was... It would be depressing, like, I think, it's, is what it's, they would do. <laughs> right. And I kind of expected it to look cheesier just because I did know this movie was made in the 80s and, you know, the, the effects wouldn't be what, what they could be on stage. So on stage, a puppet like that is amazing. In a movie, you would expect it to be like, oh, it's a 
it's a puppet, you know, but yeah. it, it didn't lose anything for me. You know, it still felt impactful. And I think part of it is the the scale, as we talked about a little bit, making it look big as it grows and, and knowing that it was still puppetry, I think almost makes it more impressive because it was intricate enough that it didn't look cheesy. What I thought was really interesting, if you look at the Wikipedia article about the musical, because I was kind of refreshing my memory a little bit, and it talks a lot about how this musical is really popular for community theater and schools because of the orchestration. Um, 60s music and Motown music have fairly simple orchestration. So that's why it's picked up a lot by community theaters and schools. But when I was watching the stage version and the movie, I kept thinking like, how are schools doing this? Like this puppet is so intricate and, you know, some of the technology behind that to make that look cool would be so intricate. So it's interesting to me that it's simple enough that that makes it worth it for schools to do, but I guess it also doesn't have a super big cast. So you wouldn't necessarily need a lot of kids or people to put it on. It's, uh, it's kind of I would lovingly think it seems like intimate. A- Right. There's very few. There's very few characters. There's a few, you know, um, shills and marketing types and such that like swing through to harass and bug uh, Seymour. But honestly, it's mostly just about like six characters, five characters, which is and you know, you cast that right. Like you don't have to have a big pool of talent to do it. Yeah. So let's let's get into the music a little because we've been talking about it uh, with the exception of the Dennis song kind of on the periphery. But it, sometimes musical music is not catchy because it is – and I, I kind of think of like the Sondheims out there where it is it is like big and it's operatic and it's theatrical and it's really impressive a lot of times performed on like – an opulent stage with good singing, but it's, you can listen to like, you know, the wicked soundtrack and which I like, I've seen it. And there's a couple songs that you end up going like popular or something like that, where you're like, Oh, I'll throw this on a mix. And it's really catchy as just like a song uh, removed from the musical. And this, it feels so impressive because every single, it, Picking a favorite song of this movie is is so difficult because every single one is not just like a good song for a musical, but I honestly believe a legitimately great song. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 there's very few of these musicals, even musicals I like, that I go to uh, Spotify or whatever afterwards and actually listen to the soundtrack. And I did it for this one. I was like, I was like, oh, this is like a really nicely orchestrated song. It's, it's uh, got some really like heartfelt vocals. Rick Moranis l- l- gives the right amount of you know naturalism to his voice that i find charming but also he can hit those notes sometimes which is yeah like, that that uh i don't like i don't know ho, uh, ho, yeah. ho. like that one especially is um amazing yes and i thought what i find really interesting is i mean the music is all motown right it's, yeah. it's trying to kind of call back to the 1960 original which i think is brilliant um oh yeah and I don't think this would work if they hadn't chosen. When I tell people it's like a doo-wop musical combined with sci-fi, I mean, it feels very Rocky Horror Picture Show to me in some ways, yeah. just with the the sci-fi tie-in and the quirk and the, yeah, I don't know. But what I find really interesting is it has all this 60s Motown vibe, but one of the most famous songs from this musical is Suddenly Seymour, 
which I don't hear so much of that Motown vibe. That's kind yeah, of that's the, like, a straight ballad. Yeah, and like the theater nerds of the world love Suddenly Seymour. The maybe not so musical heavy people who like this movie or in general know Little Shop of Horrors are more fans of you know Skid Row or just you know the Little Shop of mean Horrors Green theme. Mother from space. Yes, or... those really really heavy Motown vibes. Um, and I love them both, but it's, it, it also is interesting to me how they still work, you know, so, somewhere that's green and suddenly Seymour feel more like the, the musical ballad, but it doesn't sound like it's from a different show. Well, it also feels like where their career ended up going, right? Suddenly Seymour is the kind of calling card for Disney movies The other musicals that they got really famous for, it doesn't feel like there's too much Little Shop of Horrors DNA in it, um, with the exception of like- pull influences, right? Like in in Little Mermaid, there's uh, influences from, yeah, Caribbean music, and and they pull influences where they, they need to still. Yeah, but I mean, just the general, I think, tone of their musicals really, I mean, if you were- to pick a song that like was the Rosetta Stone for the rest of their career, I agree it would be it would be suddenly Seymour. Like yeah, and and that's a that's an awesome point. Um, I uh, that Rachel made. I hated when Aaron made it. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but that's that's a really great point because it also highlights why I like the music in this movie, and that's why I like suddenly Seymour is because it's sort of an outlier. It's yeah, not a complete yeah. outlier, but it's sort of an outlier in it. So I can really appreciate it in the context of the movie where you're waiting for these two to get together. And then you get the big raw nerve musical song. The sort of thing that like musical people freak out about is that sort of like very earnest, very big, like very like salt, like sweet music song. Yeah. And um, love those music songs, musical <laughs> songs, favorite um, music songs, orchestral with like big sound and everything. But like, I'm really my in my normal musical taste. Like, I'm very much into the Motown sound and like, yeah, that yep. Phil Spector era of like. The, by the way, the three. Um, the three sort of like Greek chorus uh, ladies are. Uh, what are they? Ronette, Crystal, and they're, no, they're Sean. all named. Yeah, they're all named after 60s uh, and 50s do-up groups because it's the Crystals, the uh, yes. um, the Rondas, I think, and the I'd have to double check. But yeah, yeah, they're yeah. all named after 60s uh, do-up group. Yes, it's that, that Phil Spector Motown era that's just like absolutely um, just my my jam. Like It is. That I really like. I really like. So it being in a, the context of a musical helps get me into it on a style side of of things where it's not as as traditional or maybe as stuffy as some musicals are that kind of have pushed me away over the years. Let's talk about the one song I think doesn't work, which is somewhere that's green. I think it works. I don't. It sucks saying because I think Ellen Green is so great in this movie and she's great in other things I've seen her in. She was in Pushing Daisies as one of the aunts and she was. um, She is. It was so good to see her in that. Um, And uh, it's such a great vocal performance. I really like that part of it. I think that it comes too early in the movie. I think it kind of stops the movie dead in its tracks before we get to see um, Audrey 2 really blossom and stuff like that. Um, And I think even from a thematic standpoint, it only makes sense in the theatrical version um, where you're kind of saying like, yeah, actually, she likes Seymour too. This isn't just a nice guy. Uh, creepily pursuing someone in a relationship but 
um, it kind of gives him an out that she had these same feelings, and she, but she had such a negative view of herself from like being a victim of abuse and the patriarchy and everything else that she just had such she didn't think that she was worthy of someone uh, a murderer like Seymour. Um, but um, so I it sucks to say that, but I think I think best case I would have moved it later in the movie. Um, but I really do think that where the having it in the first 30 minutes kind of just stops it a little cold. And, um, the song itself, even though it's a great vocal performance is kind of, it's a little bit too ballady in a movie that I don't think needs that many ballads. I think suddenly Seymour works ballad wise. I, I completely disagree, but Rachel, what do you think? You know, I was actually thinking when I watched the movie that I felt like the placement of Somewhere That's Green was earlier in the movie than it is in the stage version. And I don't have any evidence to back that up, but I did kind of feel like it was sudden. Um, and Would you it, say it was suddenly? I was just going to say I, <laughs> I want to make a suddenly Seymour joke, but I don't want to <laughs> stoop to Aaron's level. Thank um, you. Let <laughs> me stoop. I don't have that much room on the stoop. I can't have people join me. But I I did feel like it was a little a little too soon. I think they're trying to make you care about Audrey, but I I don't know. I I still like the song and I think it serves a strong purpose and I think for being kind of that character building monologue ballad that works in musicals, it it's kind of original in how they say I want the white picket fence life and frame it as a better homes and gardens thing but i yeah i I, i'm not in love with it i guess is the long story short yeah i agree i agree with you from the perspective of like giving some three three dimensions to her character and letting ellen green sing i just think the song is kind of boring and it comes way too early in the movie so i love the song i think it's super funny i think the idea the entire idea that that her fantasy for what their life together is going to be this like out of a magazine very boring like leave it to beaver almost like american like true middle class stereotype and how she's like caressing the plastic on the furniture and she's like caressing the toaster and how when they open their bedroom it's two beds (laughs) like all that is hysterical to me i love it i think the song is super funny i don't think it goes on too long i think that whole um vision of the suburbs um is also very funny because it's like so evidently fake and the reason i like it so early is it also helps sink you to the surfaces of the film the the tone the texture of the film the uh, idea that like some of this is going to be sort of purely fantastical it's not necessarily going to be literal um, that's one reason I really like it being so early. Two, I like that it suddenly makes the movie a two-hander. It's not just Seymour's movie anymore once this happens. Yeah. Once this happens, it's not just about endearing you to Audrey, though it works because she's so sweet. It it works because suddenly you know she also is romantically interested in him, so it sets off two journeys instead of one. Aaron hinted at the, it's not just Seymour pursuing, you know, a a woman in a relationship. She needs to be liberated from this guy. And it makes, I think it makes the moral conflict of the movie that much more interesting when they're finally actually united in uh, Suddenly Seymour. Because she doesn't know that he basically murdered, (laughs) I mean, he didn't murder him, but he he made him actually go away. Um, 
Well, and I think it does work in the theatrical version, especially as a bookend, because the end of the movie is essentially a fantasy sequence. They get their white picket fence in yeah. the Better Home and Gardens magazine, and they get to live happily ever after. So it, it works well as a thematic bookend in the theatrical version. I still think it just it, the movie is building momentum to where the plant is going, and it stops it a little bit dead in its tracks. I, I like it so early, though, because also because establishing her journey so early also helps allay any discomfort at the idea of her being a gold digger or someone that's just like Seymour when he becomes famous. Like, but I don't, I don't think there's a, I, but see, so I think that that's, that stuff, I think that that stuff is, is important to establish early because otherwise in a 90 minute movie, you might be like, Oh well, she likes him now that her Seymour murdered her his her boyfriend. So I do agree that's Im- I do agree that that's very important. But I so the fame part though is like the reluctant thing that he doesn't want to go along with. I kind of take issue with the idea that Seymour is like that, that he is any in any way doing any of this for a level of fame. He seems to hate fame throughout the movie. He's doing it all for her. So I definitely agree that it like lightens the creepy load on him for like. Doing all this for someone in a relationship, but I don't see her as any point as like a gold digger because she is clearly like in in an extremely abusive relationship with a sadist who is constantly letting her know what his opinion of her worth is. And she's internalizing all that toxicity. So I but you know, but you partially know that because of somewhere that's green like i think that i think that he you would have it would have been very easy to to um disregard her love for um a woman in trauma that needed some sort of stability and like oh seymour's here yeah but he's but he's also still murdering people and not telling her about it so like i I would have had to replace it with a different song i think a little later in order to do that because i think that the innocence of it early on is is part of why it works i guess my so to jump ahead to that part i guess the problem is is that even this idea of like seymour is a nice guy and she um she wants the same thing but she has so internalized her abuse that she doesn't think she's deserving and i think that's a from a important three-dimensional shading of the character i think it's critical but I do have some problems, especially now that I've um, seen the director's cut a couple times and have a little more thoughts on it. You know, her, her she left an abusive boyfriend who was uh, obviously a monster, like a literal human monster. And then she ends Almost up... Almost to the point where it's not funny. Yeah. Um, there's definitely some harsh scenes that I'm not a fan of where even though it's it's... It's in the movie because that's he sees her like hitting her through a kind of a curtains. And that is supposed to be the impetus for him finally taking the action to decide that, you know, a lot of folks deserve to die and kind of agreeing with that philosophy that he's being persuaded of. But again, this is still a man who murders the person who's like a father to to her and and doesn't tell her about it. So it's it's not. Like, I, I don't want to get into, like, a debate about what kind of ab- <coughs> abuse is worse or anything like that, but 
you know, that's why I kind of reject the notion that that Seymour is the nice guy, which is a lot of what somewhere that that the screen is kind of about and it underlines it more and it needs to in the theatrical version where you do need to buy them as a couple at the end of the movie because that's the happy ending that everyone wanted. But someone who murders your father figure in your life and is lying to you about all this stuff is also not exactly a nice guy. And it also is denying her a level of agency uh, just in a just in a different way, which is, again, why I think the kind of realization in the director's cut that he is a monster is plays better with the rest of the move. But also, I think that her sacrifice leading to the ending only makes sense with somewhere that's green, because I think you need to have her love be so pure for him throughout yeah. the movie that she almost never even thinks that Seymour could be a monster. And then this scene happens and she's like. I, I trust you so much. I relinquish relinquish my very life to you to make this romance happen. Well, that's what's especially like disturbing about the director's cut, though, too, because even when he she finds out and then she's murdered by the plant, her dying wish is still to make like Seymour happy. And yeah. like, if I'm gonna die for for you, I, you can just feed me to this plant, and I'll become part of the thing that you love. She is like a pure, like there is no shade of like darkness or bad to her, but it is kind of a movie, whether it's theatrical or director's cut about like her being abused and manipulated by both the bad guy and the quote unquote nice guy, um, which again, probably why the darker ending and the way the musical goes uh, had some low audience scores. Yeah. So what what other songs we need to talk about? Because we do need to talk about other songs before we head directly okay. towards the ending, even though yep. every one of these conversations seems to be sprinting towards the conclusion. So they're good. I like them. <laughs> um, sk- so we didn't really talk about Skid Row, which I think is a wonderful intro to all of uh, all of the main characters problems in the movie. The flower shop is failing. It's the they're... best intro. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It it establishes that the flower shop is failing and that's, you know, they're in a crappy area, but like also like the there's no one buying flowers. Flowers are like the definition of something you don't need. It also helps establish that Seymour is also kind of under the burden. Like this is the one job he can get and it's still keeping him broke. He's living in the basement of the of the the flower uh, or of the uh, garden nursery nursery. There we go. Um. I believe it's called a pretty shiny shop for shells, pretty shinies. Of the pretty, he lives in the basement of the pretty shiny shop with the prettiest, um, all, the, all the prettiest, all the prettiest flowers. <laughs> Some pretty flowers. <laughs> um, and then also, of course, Audrey is. Um, she thinks that where she's living, she can't find anybody that you know really. Uh, appreciates her like it's it's really sets skid row sets the movie off it's both funny uh in a sort it's of creepy mo- too but like it's, where yes, all those zombie people start kind of coming out and singing and yelling at seymour like you're right it sets up every part of the tone of this movie yes it, it, the desperation is is in there but also the sort of like dark humor of it it's not purely just this like dirge where they're just telling you how sad this world is. Like, it's playing it off with a sort of comic tone. It's It sets up kind of everything in the movie. It still needs something that's green to let you know that Audrey's in love with <laughs> Seymour. But 
Um, it sets up a lot of the movie. You know what else I think it needs? Some fun now, because this movie is some fun now. It is some fun now. Rachel, name a better intro song than this. Go. <laughs> I feel like anything I say, you're going to, to Incorrect. shut down. Wrong. Because, no. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm curious, though. Um, I'm, I'm actually curious. I wasn't trying to do it as like a weird trick question where I make you say something <laughs> no. and then tell you wrong. Because I do feel like the only thing that comes close to me is Heaven on Their Minds from Jesus Christ Superstar, which is, mm. I, I, I think, the best song of an amazing musical. And again, really sets what that movie's going for in the tone really well. But yeah. from a from an artistry standpoint and like a technical impressiveness, it is just like one guy singing a song where this is just insane. Yeah, but those tend to be the most I mean, it sticks in your head, kinda of like we were saying with the, the title track. The simplicity is kind of the genius of it. Yeah. Um, it feels very um if either of you are familiar with hairspray, it feels very like Good Morning Baltimore has a very similar kind of structure to an opening song of like taking you around the scene and the city and the time um, to kind of establish where are we at in history, what's going on, paint a picture of the characters' lives, but without being explicit, like showing them the rest of their surroundings. Yeah. And it's a very similar setup, and it's kind of used in a lot of different musicals to start that way. I mean, even Beauty of the Beast, you open up with you know, her walking around her village and talking about what that looks like. You know, it's not, it's not the only time that uh, Howard Menk or uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman did that same sort of, s sort of structure. Here's how Beauty and the Beast could have been better though. If they would have started that off before they do the, is that song called Bell? Yes. That song called? It's yes. A, before they did Bell, if they had a song called Beauty and Beauty and the Beast, so that you knew the title. Yes, there um, we go. Yes, this this anyway. this movie does have a uh, like a theme song and then an opening song, which is great. yes, it really does. <laughs> um, but I I really think I mean this one does it so well, and the lyrics are a huge part of that. And it's it just screams full of energy right off the bat, and I I do love that. I mean that's part of the reason I love it is that it's. Um, full of energy throughout but it's not afraid to slow down and like have a song just about feelings which is you know i like that in musicals now i used to really hate it <laughs> when everything would stop and it's just like i already know you're in love with her or i already know you hate living at home you said that <laughs> nine fucking times like just move somewhere get to act two I do feel like that was a common discussion point last month where you would get annoyed that people would sing their feelings. So it's really nice to hear that you've been like, sometimes I just want a good song where they sing about their feelings a little bit. <laughs> You're yeah. a changed man. Yeah, Aaron. I'm a new man. All it took was some bad musicals to be like, hey, maybe I do like musicals. He was messaging me like, I'm watching Chicago now. What's happened to me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chicago's hey. very good, by the way. Chicago's uh, very good. Yeah, it's good. Amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but not one I would have pegged, because I feel like the Phantom of the Paradise episode was the one that kind of, you were like, hold on. Do well, I like musicals? You, yeah. You, you pinpointed that. It was Phantom of the Paradise where I was like, wait a minute. This is actually really great. But yeah, it's it's it it, it, it all it all kind of led to here where all of a sudden like I'm watching suddenly Seymour and like my eyes are getting cloudy and I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm here. Yeah, it's hard not to 
this movie really does take a turn. Um, and I think maybe this will lead to the ending because it always is a depressing movie in some way. And I think a lot of that um, is because of the amazing set design of this movie. Like the flower shop. First of all, they don't have alive flowers for the first 20 minutes of the movie. It Everything looks gross and dilapidated. It really sells the, the skid row where you just can't – like can you imagine having like a sandwich anywhere <laughs> where this movie is set? You'd be like, no. I'm going to die a scurvy. And I know that's not <laughs> something you get from sandwiches, but it's just the whole thing. So it, it really it sets that well, but the movie – really takes a less comic turn after right after he kills the dentist that almost feels like a a switch flip it's not just what's happened gets darker but the like the lighting gets darker the way it's shot is a lot more like close-ups of very distressed individuals specifically seymour it stays like that up until the very end for the theatrical and then it just keeps burrowing deeper for the director's cut in the interest of time, I know we could talk about this movie forever. Let's get to the ending of the theatrical version, and let's get to the song that was nominated for um, for an Oscar because it was the only one that was original to the movie version, uh, which is "Mean Green Mother" from Outer Space. Like I could, I could sit here and say the song's amazing. The song's amazing. Does it? Did it win? It probably. I don't think it won. It did not. Which, no, it lost to Top Gun. Take my breath away. Okay. Well, that is ridiculous. <laughs> um, Taking my breath I, away is a is like a meme joke at this point because it's just like not ugh, like why why would that be an Oscar winner? Like I understand you put it on when you're like I don't know being intimate with the misses or the Mister, <laughs> but like I don't understand why that would be like something that you would think like this needs to stand for our time. Oh, those people. Um, by that I mean 1987 Oscar voters. Yeah, so even in the theatrical ending, I mean, that last scene, especially because there's so much Rick Moranis and there's so much going on, is just, besides the song, which is great, is so technically impressive. I was kind of overwhelmed. Like, I don't, it's not good for a podcast to be, like, speechless, but that's how just, like, technically impressive that whole giant musical number where he, like, pops up his own back backup singers, which is an amazing gag. Like, I'm going to oh, build so them. funny. It's a good gag. It adds to the song kind of uh, naturally. And then there's like all these other things. Like there's a gunfight and there's him hiding behind desks and him like, you know, extending his vines and stuff like that. And that's all done. I I just. You know, I was more intrigued by how they were going to like do this. And once again, kind of going back to the, the movie versus stage in the stage musical, how you get show people getting eaten is kind of limited right you know they yeah. they have to kind of go inside this puppet and and that's what you get so i was really interested to see how they would make that work in a movie context once again i i also like the backup singers showing up and all of that <laughs> because in the stage version it's expected right yeah but in a movie it's it's not and it's surprising and you can have it be a surprise rather than seeing people walk on stage so i think it worked better for me than I, than the stage version does. And so your your number one concern during that sequence was more the digestive system of the plant. Is that <laughs> correct? Yes, the anatomy specifically. How, yes. How does he chew this? <laughs> Look, anatomy is fascinating. I'm not going to begrudge you interest in it. That's what I'll say. Science is important. <laughs> Stay in school. 
So let's transition to the other ending, which we've kind of already walked through most of the bullet points that lead up to Mean Green Mother, where Audrey 1 is dead. He's going to commit suicide. Instead, he goes back to fight it. Uh, but instead of being successful, he is not. That leads to he, he gets eaten as well. And that leads to the Don't Feed the Plants sequence, which Don't Feed the Plants is such a fucking banger of a song. I love it so much. I love the way they use it in this movie where they just repeat that riff for like a few minutes over the destruction aspects that it's so good. Uh, So they kind of recounts the plan, which is the miniature versions of Audrey 2 are sold in stores. And uh, they they convince people, uh, co- easily dupe consumers, as the song says, to give them blood. And an army of these giant plants then wreak havoc and take over the world. And as I referenced earlier, the sequence in a vacuum feels like it was designed to burn money for no reason, considering it got cut. Because it is just six, seven minutes. Of, it costs $5 million. Which, Are they $25 million? Yeah, yeah it was... It was a fifth of the budget. It's like $20 million today. It's just destroying this giant set they had built on the soundstage with multiple Audrey's. It, it really is this amazing spectacle that was had to be removed because it was sad. So, Peter, had you ever seen this before? No, not until I'd seen the actual movie and then and then I heard there was a deleted scene. And the amazing thing now is that uh, you don't actually have to have a DVD with special features because YouTube just takes care of it. Um, And the the deleted scenes are almost never going to be in uh, fully restored uh, HD. Um, I understand they are on the Blu-ray for this release. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it it is fully like the last 23 minutes is change and it is fully restored so it actually um it was released as a black and white work print on the 1999 dvd and then they pulled it off the shelves almost immediately so it was actually for me falling in love with this movie one of those things i would occasionally go on ebay and try to find in my college uh days of like man do i want to spend 250 dollars? i really want to see that this is like pre-youtube pre-anything and I never did, so I was amazed when when it finally got released, and not just like a black and white work print version, but like the fully restored sequence. But even uh, watching it for this, I was almost I almost forgot that it wasn't just like oh the last five minutes are the spectacle that there's all these other director's cut moments that kind of change the last twenty three minutes. But God, it is it is something else. It truly is. So Rachel, Rachel, were you in awe by this ending, or did you think it was too mean? Like, what did you over? What did you make of this thing? I like, I prefer this ending. I'm in agreement there. I personally think it goes on for way too long. But That's like what people say, it's only like four personally. minutes of chaos, but it does, it is a lot of just chaos. But it also kind of contributes to the A, campiness of the movie, and B, kind of absurdity of that. I mean, typically in a movie like this, you'd hear, kind of, or you'd see it as kind of a prologue, right? Or I guess, you know, a, an epilogue, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. And you just kind of hear, yeah, and then the plants take over the world. But they decide to proceed (laughs) with a seven-minute sequence watching all of that happen. And it goes on a little long for me, but I also understand it and appreciate it. And those are definitely not minutes that you can get in a stage version, I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, Yeah, so it's kind of – so the stage version does end with the implication. And this is kind of saying – 
oh, what if we show the plants destroying the world? Yes. The happy ending version just doesn't make sense at all. Seymour gets buried, and then he magically finds an electrical cable to shock <laughs> yes, the thing. His arm shoots out like fucking Super Shredder in Ninja Turtles 2. <laughs> and then he shocks the thing to death, and then they go have the, the big green... They go live in, in the fantasy of the big green world, and then they have a very real-world ironic horror twist, which is that there's an Audrey planted in his yard, and yeah. the implication there is not that interesting that like yeah they're gonna have to keep dealing with audrey's but like there's just a little one just in don't yard. give them blood don't feed the plants you're fine yeah don't feed the plant it's just like it's not an enticing way to thematically end the movie as much as i want seymour to have to pay his his dues but still make it out alive and I don't want the world to end necessarily. I don't think that's necessarily a justified ending. And it is very mean to have a big <laughs> dance, a big song, song and dance, and then a slow digestion of Seymour. Like the digestion of Seymour takes. It's so slow. It's so slow. And then he spits out the glasses. Like it is yeah. crueler than it's like a Michael Haneke doing a musical. Like it's so slow and cruel. The picket fence ending, you know, the theatrical ending the the shot of the little tiny Audrey too in the the planter just felt like their compromise of okay yeah we we know you wanted this ending where everything goes in and destroys the world so we'll kind of imply that they're maybe still around but we got to keep it happy so yeah you know, it's a little just, twilight zone wink yeah so yes it doesn't really work he, but i'm being a little disingenuous so seen this version hundreds of times so me saying that i don't feel like the original theatrical ending works is not what i'm trying to articulate because it did like it i it did not seem abrupt to me it seemed naturally where the movie was going nothing about stood out for me as like out of the ordinary and i watched it over and over so i am being a little disingenuous by saying like it feels x to me because it only feels x to me in comparison to after having the full kind of original director's cut version where now looking back on it, I can see where, oh, that, yeah, this is a more appropriate result for Seymour's character. And yeah, that sudden electrocution does seem abrupt. The movie definitely works on its own terms as a, like a theatrical experience that did have to have some compromises made. But really, it's only in comparison that I can say that it now feels a little lacking to me because it, it didn't. It didn't in a vacuum. Sure. Yeah, I, I think when I first saw the movie, I was very happy with the original ending. And I was like, I was very happy with the happy ending. But while the extended apocalypse ending was really impressive on a visual level, which I'm a sucker for as somebody who loves 80, 80s horror movies, I was like, oh, it doesn't quite fit. Watching it again and kind of understanding like where the characters came from, from the top and where they're going to go from the top. I was like, oh, yeah, I vastly prefer the the apocalypse ending. It's still not perfect for me. I don't know if the movie needs to be so global in terms of its its um, punishment for Seymour. But there is something kind of beautiful to like make a movie that's a not that's an apocalypse movie that begins with a, a poor dude working in a flower shop and he doesn't know where he's gonna go 
that's kind of, kind of really cool when you compare it to the vast number of movies about a most movies are about a mad scientist wants to destroy the world and good guys stop him or b mad scientist wants to destroy the world you know he's he do, he wants to do so from the beginning and then he manages to do so in the end which is rare like yeah that sort of progression where he's just starts off as like a walter white like dork <laughs> um is so much more fun and interesting as just a, a story um uh, even if the cosmic punishment does not quite fit the uh, crime. I do hate how me- I. My biggest problem with the original cut and probably the stage musical version is I do hate how mean it is to uh, Audrey One. Yes. Like I get that. Like from a thematic standpoint, you can say that. Well, you know, this is this is the story of a someone who is just unfortunately abused by the good the bad guy and then abused by the nice guy and she has internalized a lot of that and that explains her reactions but ellen green is so like luminous in this role and having to watch her say i don't care if you've killed all these people at least as my final wish feed me to the plant so i can always be with you in a way and like that's fine with her is so like depressing and i know that's i know that's what that ending is i mean the whole the whole last 20 minutes of the director's cut is depressing but it's like depressing in a very in a way that hurts me so bad that i don't like watching it it is pretty tragic but it still works like because it's not that's where they get rid of some of the campiness it's just balanced really well it does help it does help lead lead you to the point that Audrey's death does help lead you to the point that Seymour kind of does deserve to die and get slaughtered because he kind of allows it to happen. Well, and Seymour agrees with that, too, because he's I mean, that's why he's going to kill himself. And the only reason he goes back in is to try to kill the plant before it um, before it uh, corrupts other people like it did him. Like that's that's it, and he he introduces himself going back in after the uh, standing on the edge of the building with, hey, just yeah, no, I am a complete monster. I destroyed the only thing I love because of you. Um, and it doesn't feel like a uh, that he's placing the blame on Audrey too. More of like this path that led me down made me destroy the only thing I cared about. So, um, on that, this so uh, much. <laughs> Much like the movie, the ending of this podcast took a very depressing last turn. But I like that it has these and maybe maybe a lot of the themes that we're reading into it about, like, especially the the correlation between uh, the Steve Martin character and the Rick Moranis character. Maybe that wasn't intended. Maybe it was. I don't know. But I, I do think it has a lot to say about for being a fun, campy, poppy like um musical that's just a joy to watch um as a as a as a comedy as a special effects extravaganza i i think it has some interesting things to say about like the kind of pervasive uh nice guy myth of like um these pe- these people that can't catch a break in their minds and um and you know they can be monsters too just in a different way yeah, it does have that nice guy myth going on, but it also has a little bit of the um, the the idea that you don't necessarily know who you're dating, and that like their purity of of heart and their purity to you. Because Seymour is not doesn't become an abusive boyfriend. It's not that kind of movie where like he saves her from an abusive relationship and then he becomes an abuser. Like it's not 
some brutal British drama about <laughs> the poor uh, nursery owner who uh, abuses his staff. It's it's about a guy who treats her very very well and is very honest with her and very straight with her. And then except um, for the murders that he's committing. Yeah, until except for about except for about the most crucial thing. Yeah, in his in his personality. And that's his cruelty to other people. And like, that's a, that's also a very interesting love story. The idea that like one massive thing that you just can't see about somebody like that's, that's, it, that's an interesting story too. Yeah. But yeah well said. I, I, I love, I love the movie because like I have, I have little problems with like the Steve Martin punching nurses jokes. Like the first time when he just slams the door into a nurse's face, it's funny because it's like clearly just a him being blase thing. It's not like a hitting women is funny thing and then him just knocking out nurses and like okay i have some problems with that i think like the gender dynamics of seymour and audrey one are actually very interesting and it's not and audrey one is not just given short shrift as like this you know silly girl that can't see her hand in front of her face like she's give she's given so much compassion so much love and frank oz clearly like really cares about this character he doesn't treat her as just a silly girl I love that. And he said, too, that Alan Green was the only choice that he ever wanted to play her, even though the studio really wanted uh, Cindy Lauper. So this was this was um, Oh, I guess we can do some final thoughts. I mean, uh, yeah, I love it. Peter, you can go. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I said everything I need to say. I think it's it's a tremendous love story, but it's also a toxic love story because of, of Seymour's many failures. But it's it's also just like a tremendous comedy and the way that it balances the Motown sound with also more of a traditional musical sound uh, in, in for a few segments just really won me over. Um, it, it feels like a movie made for me. Um, it was yep. one of the reasons I, I really pushed for it to being on the show. I think Aaron pushed for it being on the show because it's also matches his style very much. Um, but yeah, Rachel, Rachel what did you make of this thing overall? I loved it too. I don't think that's any surprise that we're all all big fans. So this final thoughts probably isn't super interesting. But overall, I feel like the movie did the musical justice, which is kind of its role in coming after the musical. They killed it. I think it's awesome. The ending is a great point of discussion. Um, and I think we did it justice ourselves. I hope so. This was definitely feels like a less jokey one that you were on with newsies. And that tends <laughs> yes. to happen sometimes when there's something that, uh, you know, we're, we end up really passionate about because, you know, I could probably find two two hours more worth of stuff to talk about this movie because it, it really is just like there's only so many like absolute favorite movies for us to discuss. And this this really is, you know, my favorite movie musical. I think I'd still I'd still put it on that 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 spot it's one of those movies that i'm you know i'm always excited to show people i can't wait till my kids are old enough to to watch this as a few years away uh but (laughs) but it just is such a you know uh special movie so i hope our audience uh enjoyed a little more of just uh uh three people gushing over (laughs) over a movie thank you so much rachel for being on the show i hope you had i hope you had a different sort of fun (laughs) <laughs> Maybe, but I hope you still had fun, uh, especially because I have to see you tomorrow. So if you didn't. Yeah, it's going to be real awkward. Yeah. We are on opposite ends of the building, though, now. so We are. I can avoid you. 
if I want. Very easily. <laughs> if she avoids you tomorrow, know that she had a bad time today. Okay. <laughs> no, but uh, in, in all seriousness, thank you guys again for having me. Always, always a blast. Coming. Thank you for coming. You were a pleasure. This was so much fun. So yeah, Aaron, what do we got left to, to wrap up this month with? So yeah, we're going to what I think I would call my second favorite movie musical with uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Uh, very different than this. Very different. But it kind of gives you a sense of what kind of music I like in my musicals. Because again, those that's very like uh, still musical numbers, but instead of like 60s doo-wop, it's all like glam rock stuff. Uh, but it's great. Yeah. And I... I haven't watched it in a couple of years, and I haven't rewatched it yet for our recording. So, uh, very excited for that. And then we are uh, we can announce our next month for July or no June. June's the next month, right, Peter? Hold on, let, let's check the calendar. Yeah, I think June. Do some calculations. If I yeah. Had, uh, <laughs> no, you're using the the Gregorian calendar. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> okay. Um. So we're doing summer camp, and we are doing. Uh, it's June. It's hot out there. The kids are going away to summer camp. Did any of you guys actually go to a summer day camp? I feel like that's something that's only in movies. And I never actually like knew anyone that like just went away for a few weeks. I did not. I I did not. I went to day camp a couple times and yeah. didn't really didn't really like it because it was very much like uh, as soon as the day starts getting going, you have to go home. Yeah, it's also a little bit like. Hey, is this just school for summer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we are so we decided to do since there's not there's a, there's a lot of camp movies but there's not a ton of good ones. We decided to do kind of an example from each like mini genre of camp movies. So we're starting with uh the horror camp movie with uh 1981's slasher movie The Burning. Which was a hard pick, I think, but I'm, I'm taking Aaron's lead on this one. I think the burning is going to be so much fun. So the other one, we'll just say it because anyone who listens to this would go, why why the fuck aren't you doing Sleepaway Camp? We are at some point in the future. Sleepaway Camp is a better movie than uh, The Burning. Sleepaway Camp is this amazing uh, movie. We will be talking about that at some point in the future, so we're not leaving it out. Like, Sleepaway Camp didn't lose to The Burning. We just decided to do something different with Sleepaway Camp at some point in the, hopefully, kind of near future. Keep your letters, Rachel. <laughs> uh, we're doing Sleepaway Camp. Uh, and then we are doing uh, the kids' camp movie, which is Heavyweights, uh, which I haven't seen since I saw it in theaters three times. So this is going to be a very interesting, in 1994, so this will be a very interesting revisit for me. Uh, and then we're doing the documentary camp movie with Jesus Camp, the 2004 documentary about uh, the uh, camp for uh, religious fundamentalist kids in Devil's Lake, uh, North Dakota. And uh, then we're going to wrap it up with the comedy camp movie, which is kind of where I feel like the genre is mostly known for with a wet, hot American summer the best uh, so, comedy of all time. Yeah, the best movie of all time. Yeah. So, uh, and Amanda Lett is guesting on Jesus Camp and Anthony uh, Shit. How did he pronounce Is it Pizzo or Pizzo? Uh, is it Pizzo? Pizzo? It's Pizzo. Okay. Anthony Pizzo. Um, <laughs> he's <laughs> guesting on Wet Hot American. Not fake Italian. Summer. I think he, I mean, he's a listener of this podcast. I think he's get it. <laughs> Like he probably that's probably an honor for him. He's probably gonna put that on his resume, Peter. <laughs> the We Love to Watch host did their trademark 
impeccable Italian accent about my name. I think I think he's gonna be psyched. And if not, he knows how to reach me. Um, <laughs> so uh, before we finish up, uh, Rachel, did you have anything to plug? No, no plugs. Just plug your own show. Yeah, I mean, if they're listening, they've heard it of it. I think. <laughs> Keep listening That's what I'm to saying, the though. thing you're already listening to. It'd be super weird Don't if they're do- like, at this point, is this not serial? <laughs> is this the point? Is this the point where I should say, "Don't let this be the only episode you're watching out of pity for for Aaron and Pete"? You should just continue to listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't. Here's my plug to listen to more than one episode. <laughs> Let's underline: do it out of pity, but don't stop at one. I mean, yeah. Listen, I don't want to give up pity just yet. Yeah, if you listen to to one, we're gonna feel even sadder. So listen to a hundred and seven. There you go. Yeah. And uh, and join the Peace Corps. on Amazon. And join the Peace Corps. <laughs> and Greenpeace and go fight whaling ships. And now we have taught you well. <laughs> Our numbers dropped off because so many people joined the Peace Corps. <laughs> <laughs> they have the internet in the Peace Corps. <laughs> they're, not, they're not joining the Mennonites. <laughs> I'm trying to protect myself with lies, Aaron. Stop oh, taking yeah. the lies away from me. Uh, good night. <laughs> Good night. Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page, especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.